Have you ever wondered what the carrying capacity of the planet is or why that would be important? That is to say, how many people could live on the Earth sustainably so that we're not using any non-renewable resources and the renewable ones renew based on natural processes? Why is this important? Well, many people ask how we're going to feed 10 billion people. Right, the mathematician way of asking that is not how can we, but if we can, and if so, how would we do it? Because maybe we can't. That's an interesting question. It would be useful to know because the strategy changes very much if we don't think that we can feed that many, or if we think that that would be an easy number that we could feed. So first I want to remind from an old podcast post a while ago, I said we don't want to know what the carrying capacity is. That is, we don't want to be anywhere close to it. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty, so the only real way to know, I mean, the only way to know for sure would be to see what the carrying capacity would be. That is to say, have that many people live sustainably. Well, what does that mean to have the most number that, could, that the earth could sustain? If everyone is living happily at a certain number, that would not be the carrying capacity because we could put more people on. If there, was resources, if there were abundant resources to go around, we could add more people. And we could keep adding more people until there were no more resources to keep. If we added one more person, that person would cause someone somewhere else to die. And also, if you could give a little bit less to everyone, then you could fit more people on. So the carrying capacity means... How many people are there when exactly the amount that could keep people alive is all being used to keep people alive with nothing left to spare? That is, everyone is at absolute bare minimum resources to keep themselves alive. This would be a miserable existence. We would all be on the border of life and death. So I put to you, we do not want to get anywhere near what the carrying capacity is if we want to live at the absolute maximum carrying capacity. How can we narrow down the number? We could ask the resources per person, how, many, how much resources everybody would use, and how much resources Earth can provide and renew. That's one way of doing it. Another is what they do in Limits to Growth, the book, is they project how much the planet would sustain for a systems perspective, including the history, how many people have lived so far and how much we've used up so far, and how we live our values. If we want to live profligately, we can have fewer people. If we, if we clean up the world of less pollution and things like that, if we live our values differently, it would change the numbers too. So that's a couple of ways we could narrow it down. I prefer a historical perspective. I learned this from Alan Weiss's book, Countdown. The way he looks at it is to look at the Haber-Bosch process, the main technology or innovation behind the Green Revolution. The Haber-Bosch process allows us to make artificial fertilizer. Let's look at some history. If you go far enough back, people hunted and gathered. We didn't have a very large population then. Then there was an agricultural revolution. And while it took time to increase the number of people, the agricultural revolution did increase the number of people. So what limited the number of people that agriculture could sustain? The big thing was fixing nitrogen. So I'm not a biologist. I don't know too much here, but here's my understanding. Plants take nutrients out of the soil. One of them is nitrogen. Some plants simply remove nitrogen. Others put nitrogen back in, or the plants don't do it, but they create processes that put nitrogen back in the soil. If you plant only the type that uses up nitrogen, after a while, that land will no longer be able to allow that crop to grow there. There are a couple things you could do to get around this. One is you could fertilize using animal manure. Bat guano and bird guano, that is to say their poop, that would do it. So that had nitrogen in it that would seep into the soil, and that could get plants to grow. You could also rotate crops. So one year you put in a crop that uses up the nitrogen. The next year you use a crop that fixes nitrogen and puts it back in. I think you need a fallow year in there. In any case, people had learned to rotate crops by some things like legumes and clover, and I forget what else. They would tend to fix nitrogen. 
Well, both of these processes worked, that is the guano and rotating crops, but they put a limit on how much you could grow because, because guano, there's only so much supply of it and fertilizer from other animals, there's only so much of it. And rotating crops decreased the total productivity of the land. So that set a limit on how much food we could produce and that set a limit on how many people we could produce. Somewhere around the late 1800s, people had discovered islands in the Atlantic and the Pacific that were covered with tens of tons, I don't know how much, a lot of guano. Boats would go there and mine it and bring it back. And toward the beginning of the 20th century, as I understand, we had used up all the resources, all the natural resources, and I guess it's a kind of renewable, but mostly not, non-renewable on that level, amount of guano to use as fertilizer. And people had discovered chemical processes that could create a nitrogen that could go in the soil, but it was extremely expensive and didn't really work that well. And then Haber and Bosch, I don't know all the history, they created a process that would create, I think, ammonia that would make nitrogen available to plants, what we would call fertilizer, artificial fertilizer. Actually, the way it got really kicked in was it was involved with mustard gas and World War I poison gas and uh, also allowing the Germans to stay in the war a lot longer because they didn't have access to the guano, but this process allowed that to happen. Then I'm not sure exactly what happened between the wars, but after World War II, combined with a couple other things, the Haber-Bosch process and new strains of wheat and new strains of other things created the Green Revolution. As most people describe it, the Green Revolution enabled billions of people to live that would not have lived otherwise. Most people credit it with saving those lives. Arguably, you could say it enabled these lives to be formed that wouldn't have otherwise. There are lots of places where humans stayed at level populations for a long, long time. One important part of the Haber-Bosch process is that it requires fossil fuels. It requires their energy, and I believe it requires some of their ingredients. That means that as far as we know, we can't use artificial fertilizers if we want to be sustainable. Because if it requires fossil fuels and the fossil fuels are non-renewable, we can't use them sustainably. Not using artificial fertilizer, not using the Haber-Bosch process, means going back to the population when we lived without artificial fertilizer, which means before the Haber-Bosch process, which was the early 20th century, let's say before World War I, the population around then was about 2 billion people. Let's say with some technology, we could probably improve it, even if not the Haber-Bosch process. Let's say 3 billion people. That would mean that we're over double. Some people, and I believe they're brazen in saying this, I, I don't think they're sincere. I think they're joking if they really thought about it, or maybe they're just not thinking about it too much, but they say, to solve these problems, we need to have more babies because more babies will have more geniuses and the more geniuses will solve these problems. Well, at 2 billion people, we had had Einstein, Mozart, Newton, Shakespeare, Galileo, all these geniuses. I don't see so many of them here today. Well, I did a post earlier, a podcast episode actually, on pointing out how if more population meant more success, wouldn't that say that the United States should have won the World Cup by now? Wouldn't it say that Italy should not have? Because the United States is a lot bigger than Italy, has a lot more money available to it, a lot more resources, a lot more babies to learn soccer, but Italy wins more than the United States does. For that matter, lots of little countries have won. I think it's not so much the number of people, but the environment and the values that they, pay, that they live in. In any case, I think that the people who tend to say that, they tend to be conservatives, and I would point out to them that if they're into Jesus or Buddha or Aristotle or Lao Tzu, they lived at times of, I think, several hundred million people. We don't need billions. We don't need more people to get more geniuses. I just don't see them right now in, in huge numbers. And for that matter, we may be producing fewer if they have to struggle to get resources. 
if we're over the carrying capacity of the planet. Now, that is simple if we're using non-renewable resources. That seems to be the case. But if we're over it by a factor of three or four, the strategy becomes not how to feed 10 billion, but how do we lower the population before that collapse? For most of my time considering what to do about the environment, I realized population was a major issue, but I couldn't say what we would do about it because if the only way to lower population is through a one-child policy or eugenics or deliberately trying to create wars or something like that, well, even if those strategies worked, and I'm not so sure that they would, if the cure is worse than the disease, that is, if we decide to lower the population by forced abortions, forced sterilizations, or anything remotely like racist and other types of policies that really no one wants, I don't think anyone wants anything like that, certainly not me. However, everything changed also when I read Alan Weissman's book, Countdown, in which I learned about, say, Thailand. You know, the condom in Thailand is sometimes called the Machai. Why the Machai? Machai Viravianda. I'm not sure how to say his last name. It's a kind of long name. I don't speak the language. But this guy Machai looked at the numbers. This is, I think, in the 70s. Now, he had learned in economics that if there are problems like distribution or unemployment, you could always grow out of the problems. A rising tide lifts all boats. And he kept doing the numbers and trying to figure out how in Thailand, with poor people and all the, whatever the economic situation was, he kept trying to figure out how to grow out of the situation. And, and no matter how much he did the numbers, they never worked out. Eventually, he realized we couldn't keep growing our way out of this. Somehow, he started promoting family planning. Look in Alan Weissman's book for details, because he shares them. And you can also watch Machai's TEDx talk, which I'd link to, I'll link to in this episode too. And he started doing fun things. Think of everything as the opposite of whatever you think of, if you think of the one-child policy or eugenics. Think of the opposite of that. Instead of forced abortions, forced sterilizations, think of kids playing with condoms like they're balloons and playing around and giving them to cops so they'll give them to anyone on the street who wants them. Family planning that's fun and voluntary. And this one guy started a movement in which I think in about a generation, maybe the 80s into the 90s or so, Thailand's birth rate dropped from seven children per woman to 1.5 children per woman, creating prosperity, abundance, stability for everyone. No forced anything. This was voluntary and fun. They made superhero characters and did fun stuff with kids. And it was a playful, fun thing. They're not the only country that did it. Other countries did things like this. And that's what we could do too. This is why it's important to know the carrying capacity of the planet. Because if we are over it, and it looks like we are more than double over it now, and at 10, we'd be triple or maybe four times over it. Oh, and if at national levels, in several cases, we've lowered the population birth rate while increasing prosperity, abundance, peace, stability, that's something, if we can make that go into the whole world, if we can replicate that or expand or extrapolate from that to the whole world, that seems to me what our strategy should be. Understanding the carrying capacity of the planet seems to me the most important issue on figuring out what our strategy should be. Because if we're over, and as far as I can tell, we are, the carrying capacity of the planet, our number one strategy should be lower it voluntarily, peacefully, as has been done before, stably, yielding abundance. That should be our number one strategy. It has nothing to do with the government getting into the bedroom or nanny state policies like that. I think it was mostly started outside government and went into government, but I'm not so sure about that. In any case, that's why I talk about population. That's why I think it's important to know the carrying capacity. So knowing about the Haber-Bosch process to set the upper limit and knowing about what happened in Thailand and other nations to set a strategy, 
this seems to me the number one starting point for what we do next.